Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Apple Store Soho. How are you guys doing tonight? You doing all right? Well, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest, author of Me, the People, Kevin Blyer. Thank you, Matt, and hello, fellow patriots, all of you, I can tell. Uh, actually, it's odd, it's odd that this is the first reading I've given where I feel it might be more appropriate for me to tell you to turn on your cell phones. I'm not sure if that's right or not. Um, I am Kevin Blyer, uh, and I did, in fact, rewrite the Constitution of the United States all by myself. Uh, it only seems appropriate as I stand here at a podium with you looking at me expectantly that I say a few words before I give a, re a bit of a reading, so I shall. When I tell people that I rewrote the Constitution, uh, the question that I most often hear, either from their lips or just in my head is, why did you, why? Um, and there are a number of very good reasons for that. A number of, a few maybe not so good reasons, but a number of very good reasons. First of all, I had no choice in the matter. Thomas Jefferson told me to. Um, now, now, Thomas Jefferson, who I think we can all agree is one of our more foundry of our founding fathers, said, among other things in his illustrious career, that every constitution on earth naturally expires after 19 years. Now, that's true, he said that. Um, he also said, if it be enforced longer than that, is it, an act, it is an act of force and not of right. So every 19 years. And so by his math, the American Constitution should have been rewritten at least 11 times by now. So I actually feel bad that I'm only getting to it now. I've been slacking for over two centuries. So I apologize to you all. I apologize to the listeners at home. Um, now, what's more, if you will permit a moment of seriousness, it would seem to me that the Constitution actually might need a little bit good publicity these days. Certainly we see people cozy up to it, quote it, say what they think it means. But um, in my research for the book, or as I like to call it, my me-search for the book, I learned a few alarm, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I've won Emmys. Yeah, it's true. Uh-huh, yeah. It's that kind of turn of phrase that really nails it. I'd like to thank the Academy. Um, I learned a few th alarming things about our Constitution, and these are all true. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, of the 100, and, I think 25 years ago, of the 170 countries that then existed, a full 160 of them, a full 94% used our Constitution as a model, at least in part. And in the last 20 years, of the fledgling democracies that are shopping around for a Constitution, a full zero of them have looked to our Constitution. And you add to that, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was actually in Egypt a few months ago and said to the Egyptians who are trying to redesign their Constitution that she would not actually, she wouldn't necessarily look to the American Constitution as a model if she were designing a Constitution right now or a democracy. Um, so I thought, heck, if she, it's her job to protect the Constitution. So if she can't thoughtlessly cheerlead for it, like I want her to, uh, maybe I can even though I'm totally and utterly unqualified to do so. Um, uh, and finally, I figured, look, if, if, and I think you'll like this in the room, if Apple can rewrite their, the iTunes terms of service agreement every 19 minutes, <laughs> at the very least, I can rewrite the Constitution every 19 years. That seems only fair. Uh, but then the question becomes, well, why rewrite the Constitution 
rather than just point at it and say, come on, guys, it's really great. Um, why pile on with 300 pages of you know, pointing out where each and every amendment and article goes wildly and in, in my book, comically wrong? Uh, and actually, I begin the book with an anecdote that I think might explain why I think that's an important thing to do. Um, so if you'll permit me, uh, I shall begin. By the way, this is my bookmark. Don't judge me. Um, the book begins like this. Their beloved bell was in jeopardy. It had hung dutifully for decades, peeling hourly from its steeple above the Pennsylvania State House, breaking the peace of the Philadelphia streets, only to remind its citizens that time had marched on and all was well. But these were no longer peaceful times. It was 1777 a year after America had declared her independence from the British crown, and only days after her lion-hearted general, George Washington, had suffered a withering defeat at the Battle of Brandywine. All signs were that Philadelphia, the revolutionary capital, might well be the next to fall. Fearing that the king's men would melt any metal they found into British cannons, a few American patriots confiscated their own bell Soon to, be, soon to be known appropriately as the Liberty Bell, and hid it in the safest place they could find, under a pile of horse manure. True story. The gambit worked. The marauding redcoats never got their British hands on our American liberty. The lesson learned then rings as clear today that sometimes, in order to save and honor something we cherish, we have to shit on it. So that's what I seem to have done. That might give me the political cover to write a book that ultimately admires the Constitution. Um, I actually, I will just take a moment to say I was amused that, to see that last week, and also this is a true story, the uh, maintenance crew at Independence Hall, where Liberty Bell is, Liberty Bell is uh, spent a full day adding a protective shellac to the Liberty Bell. And I couldn't help but think, knowing now what we know about what the American patriots where they put it uh, 230 years ago, you cannot but think they're about 230 years late on that. Um, uh, now, I also say that in the last couple of weeks, I've been giving some readings, and um, people have asked, where'd you get the idea to, uh, to rewrite the Constitution? And in my research, or as I call it, thank you, my research, uh, I learned that I wasn't actually the first person to rewrite the entire Constitution. Um, it was both a heartbreaking uh, revelation and also somewhat motivational, and I'll tell you what happened there. A particular gentleman went before me. Pay attention, this is important. A man named Rexford Guy Tugwell, who actually existed, and whose cartoon, yeah, exactly, <laughs> thank you, and whose cartoonish name, therefore, I did not make up, spent the last 30 years of his life trying to rewrite the Constitution of the United States. Before his death in, seven, in 1979, he composed 32 separate drafts of a revised Constitution, a new and improved set of guiding principles he hoped would be appropriate to the modern times, accepted by his government, and embraced by his nation. He failed. It, his attempt, it pains me to gloat, was widely regarded as the lunatic ravings of a misguided crank, not least because Tugwell, if not quite a raving lunatic, was widely regarded as a misguided crank. Although he completed his self-imposed fool's errand and published his draft with a reputable publisher who frankly should have known better, it rhymes with Marper's Hagazine, 
His proposals were far too, let's say, nutballs for even the indulgent sensibilities of the 1970s. Replace the 50 states with 20 republics. Elect the president to one nine-year term. Add two branches of government. I know, nutballs. <laughs> he had fooled many people, even presidents, for decades. Armed with a degree in agricultural economy from Wharton in the 1920s, Tugwell was a vocal part of FDR's so-called brain trust and served as an architect of the New Deal in the 1930s. He was even featured on the cover of Time magazine in 1934, five years before Hitler was so honored. You know, back when it meant something. <laughs> then things got weird. Tugwell, a devotee of the literature of revolt and reconstruction, became the first head of FDR's notorious Resettlement Administration, a federal agency tasked with relocating the urban poor to the suburbs. There were other early signs of his troubling lack of judgment. During a 1927 junket to the Soviet Union, Tugwell missed a six-hour meeting with Joseph Stalin because he lost track of time while touring a collective farm. To repeat, Tugwell was too busy stu studying communism to meet with Joseph Stalin. <laughs> then, apparently taking his desire to get off the fast, fast track too literally, he went to work for the American Molasses Company, whose name, it must be said, I also did not make up. For two year long years as a molasses magnate, Tugwell lived a sweet life. Thank you. Again, Emmys. One last hurrah in American politics beckoned when New York Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia appointed Tugwell chairman of the New York City Planning Commission. Here, too, Tugwell ruffled feathers, insisting publicly that his commission was no less than the fourth power of government. News to both Mayor LaGuardia and Park Commissioner Robert Mo Moses. Again, he lasted a mere two years, or it was, as it was officially declared, 1,051,897 New York minutes. His options exhausted, Tugwell went south. In 1942, he became the governor of Puerto Rico, having received zero votes and having won no election. At the time, the Puerto Rican governorship was an appointed position and FDR was more than happy to appoint him and point him as far away as possible. For four years as governor of, a, of the small tropical archipelago, we can presume Tugwell lived a, lived a vida muy muy loca. Some measure of his success might be surmised by the fact that soon after he left office, the position became an elective one. The people of Puerto Rico insisted on their right to choose their leader. It was then, as the 1950s approached, that Tugwell began having bright ideas. The 20th century was half over, and as the nation marched toward its 200th birthday, he began to feel that its creaky constitution was nothing to celebrate, that our basic laws, inadequate to our modern needs, needed total, in his words, reassessment. So, much like Alexis de Tocqueville, but exactly the opposite, Tocqueville traveled through America to learn its virtues. Tugwell ditched America to catalog its vaults. Tugwell began to write a series of articles, which turned into his small library of books, which turned into one heck of a delusion of grandeur, that he, the guy who missed the meeting with Stalin, who had spent three years making a sweetener for baked beans, and who was best known as the former governor of Spanish-speaking Puerto Rico, should rewrite the Constitution of the United States of America. A mere 30 years later, he had rewritten our preeminent founding document, no one noticed. At the time of his death, he was a little-known academic living in Santa Barbara. While I mock his failure, I admire his cojones. For Rexford Guy Tugwell, agricultural economist, pseudo-communist, actual person, nutball, may have been a misguided crank, as anyone said so, yet he tried and failed to do what I have yet only failed to try. That ends now. So that's how I begin that particular chapter. Now, <clears throat> Tugwell knew, as I have come to learn, 
that as much as we revere the Constitution for all of the right reasons, it's a bit of a hot mess, and the framers knew this too. For starters, this venerated document doesn't mention slavery or democracy or even Facebook pre-IPO. It plays favorites among the states, giving Wyoming as many senators as New York, and I mean, come on. It has typos and misspellings and a smudge that, and this is true, may or may not be a comma, empowering the government to seize your house, depending on who you ask. It is scrawled with the quill of a goose on the skin of a goat, and its introductory preamble, its most famous passage, was written by Governor Morris, famously a man with a peg leg, which, if you think about it, gives our sacred constitution hardly a leg to stand on. People, thank you, Groner. You saw that coming. He was officially a peg leg. That's what they called him back then. The founders knew all of this. Washington wished the Constitution had been more perfect. Franklin stomached it only, quote, with all its faults. Because while we think of our Constitution as the painstakingly designed blueprint drawn up by an assembly of demigods, indeed, the framers themselves in Philadelphia knew the truth. The Constitution wasn't exactly a blueprint. It was, yes, an etch-a-sketch, a haphazard series of blunders shaken clean and redrawn dozens of times during a sweltering summer of petty debates, drunken ramblings, wild improvisation, and desperate compromise. Imagine it. They were in Philadelphia in the summer in an unventilated room. There was no AC. They were wearing powdered wigs, wool coats. They shuttered the windows and locked the doors for privacy. There was a prison riot across the street almost the entire summer. Uh, butchers were throwing animal carcasses into the street right outside. Uh, so, you know, it was pungent all over the place, let alone what they were giving off. Um, and to make it even remotely bearable, they were drinking beer for breakfast. That's the true story. Now. Most of the colonists drank beer for breakfast. It was actually safer than water. But nonetheless, they were drinking beer for breakfast. Uh, and a few drank so much, I'm looking at you, Martin Lu Luther Martin, uh, that they gave six-hour rambling speeches that I'm sure they thought were very charming. Um, but you don't have to imagine how it all devolved. I spent a good portion, a good third of the book, accounting for the devolution of the Constitutional Convention. Um, and if you'll admit a little bit of hyperbole, it goes a little bit something like this. Now we understand how it all happened. This is at the end of the summer. Now we understand how it all happened, or rather, almost didn't. The Constitution wasn't exactly a miracle at Philadelphia all summer, written by, yes, an assembly of demigods. On the contrary, what began as a measured, deliberate effort to rescue a beleaguered country became a perpetual, unresolved motion machine, a maddening cycle of non-binding votes by a parade of toothless committees marked by fits and starts, fights and full stops, conducted by a combative group of exhausted, drunken, broke, petty, partisan, scheming, squabbling, bloviating, backstabbing, grandstanding, godforsaken, posturing, restless, cow-tipping, I explained that earlier in the chapter, homesick, cloistered, claustrophobic, sensory-deprived, under-oxygenated, fed up, talked out, overheated delegates, so distraught and despairing, they threatened violence, secession, foreign allegiance, even prayer, 
and concluded, for those who didn't abandon the proceedings altogether with as much premeditation and forethought as a game of musical chairs. The last, least abhorrent, mutually somewhat acceptable idea on the table when the music stopped, or the heat became too unbearable, or the liquor too strong, or the rioting too loud, or the pressure too intense, or the company too loathsome, or the wigs too uncomfortable, or the patience too thin, became the law of the land. As much the product of, yes, an assembly of demigods as, yes, a confederacy of dunces, and they knew it. From page one, the Constitution is, by its own admission, a great compromise. It is also what you get when you drink beer for breakfast. <laughs> um, so, and actually that kind of brings me to my drinking companion for one particular episode in the book. Um, one of the more fortunate accidents in the book is my lunch with Justice Scalia. Um, I wanted to meet with Justice Scalia because I thought, you know, who on the face of the planet would really be most amenable to a page one rewrite of the Constitution? And I thought, surely it was the man most devoted who has spent his entire life protecting every clause of the thing, um, from fools like me, frankly. Uh, and to my, su my surprise, he agreed to meet. He was game. He enjoyed the entire project because he knew ultimately the whole premise was to bring attention to the actual source code of the Constitution, as it were. Um, and we talked of many things constitutional, but I knew at some point in the lunch that I would have to turn my attentions to Article 3, his bread and butter, the judicial, bran judicial branch. Um, and I told him pretty quickly my intended changes to the Supreme Court. Um, I might want to consider revoking lifetime tenure. Uh, of course, that's when he grabbed a fork, poked it in my face, and said, don't you dare. Uh, and if you do, he said with a grin, at least grandfather me in because I like my job. So it was fun to see that he enjoyed the gig uh, and also enjoyed the premise of the book. Um, because actually, the truth is the Constitution no says nothing about lifetime tenure for Supreme Court justices. It says justices shall serve during, quote, good behavior. Now, there's a bunch of reasons, and I get into in the book, as to why that's been presumed to be lifetime tenure. But I suggested to, the, to, the Supreme, to Justice Scalia that, in fact, it doesn't actually say lifetime tenure. Uh, and, whether or not we, and whether we should give lifetime tenure to Supreme Court justices, I suggest, let's, well, for a moment, Justice Scalia, let's consider not doing so. And this is what transpired. This is the last uh, section I'll read. Again, amusing that he would be willing to meet with a smart aleck like me, I suppose. Um, I don't bother lecturing Justice Scalia on any of this. After all, after decades of legal study and 25 years of service as one of America's top judges, he's been fully briefed. Instead, I begin my cross-examination. How about you, I ask. How about me what, he counters. Can you imagine just walking away, I ask. Well, of course I can, he scoffs, with a couldn't care less tone that implies he'd just as soon leave today if only he hadn't signed a two-year lease on his Supreme Court locker. When, I ask. Like I said before, as soon as I'm not firing on all eight cylinders, when I'm not doing the job as well as I used to, it'll be time to go. How will you know when that is? He looks me straight in the eye. I'll know. You're treading on thin ice, counselor, I think to myself. So you don't need some outside authority limiting the term of your service? I'm fairly aware of the requirements of the position, he says. I'll know when I can no longer fulfill them. And yet, what if I told you, I say, Your Honor, that someone even more powerful than you says you're wrong about that? Very thin ice. And who is that? Someone you know quite well. He looks at me, wondering if he should ask. Who? 
If this were a case in some courtroom drama, this is the moment when I would stand slowly, scan the jury, look at the judge, and call on my surprise witness. May it please the court, I now call to the stand, dramatic pause, the current Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. If this were indeed a courtroom drama, the double doors in the back of the courtroom would fly open, the stenographer would record the reaction of the gallery, audible gasps, and Chief Justice John G. Roberts, Jr. would saunter up the aisle, hesitating only long enough to lock eyes with fellow Justice Scalia and feel his glare at two Roberte. Roberts would then explain to the ladies and gentlemen of the jury that no matter what he says or how he pleads for mercy, Justice Antonin Scalia should have been kicked off the court exactly 10 years ago. Back in real life, I explained what the hell I'm talking about. When he was a lawyer in the Reagan White House, 22 years before he joined the Supremes, John Roberts argued on behalf of a 15-year term limit for Supreme Court justices. It was both a pragmatic proposal, as he saw it, the founders, quote, adopted life tenure at a time when people simply did not live as long as they do now, and a principled one for many of the same reasons I've trotted out. Quote, a judge insulated from the normal currents of life for 25 or 30 years was a rarity then, but is becoming commonplace today, he wrote in a White House memo. Setting a term of, say, 15 years would ensure that federal judges would not lose all touch with reality through decades of ivory tower existence. It is an indictment of lifetime tenure too compelling to ignore. As I finish explaining, one thing is clear. Scalia knew nothing of this. Is that so, he asks? Roberts thought that? I have outlawed the longest serving associate justice of the Supreme Court. Really, he thought that, he asks again? Yes, I say, pausing a beat for dramatic effect. Yes, he did. For a moment, for a moment, Scalia seemed speechless. He could muster no defense, even though we're sitting at the National Gallery, not the Supreme Court, and eating lunch, not arguing case law. I am tempted to shout, the prosecution rests, slam an imaginary briefcase, and march out triumphantly. triumphantly. But I don't. I stay. And Scalia's grin returns. Well, he says... I doubt he does anymore. <laughs> he has a good point. Roberts doesn't think that anymore. When Roberts himself was asked about his previous comments at his confirmation hearings in 2005, he flip-flopped. Predictably, his perspective on the issue had evolved. As the law professor Larry Sabato has eloquently put it, on the issue of lifetime tenure, where one stands depends on where one sits. Scalia's joke seems to put him back on offense. So, he asks, so, it was an argument that stymied me before. So what? So, he asks, are you going to make me retire with your new constitution? I mean, I've been here longer than 15 years. Oh, he's not on the attack. He's throwing himself at the mercy of my court. No, sir. I mean, after all, I'm not here to fire Justice Scalia, though I appreciate his acknowledgement of my authority to do so. So what exactly do you propose? I thought he'd never ask. Simple, I say. Your new Article 3. The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court, and the judges shall hold their offices during good behavior. Scalia seems confused. But that's what Article 3 already says, he says. Not exactly, I clarify. I drop the U from behavior to make it more American. <laughs> but otherwise, that's Article 3 of the Constitution, he says. Indeed it is, Your Honor, indeed it is. It was, I was certain, a remedy for Article 3 that an originalist like Justice Scalia could not help but support. 
we take it literally. We revive the original article and we honor its original language. Judges shall hold their offices during good behavior. Surely a dyed-in-the-parchment originalist wouldn't mind a stricter adherence to the text of the original virgin article, the genuine article, before it was corrupted over decades of convenient interpretations by self-serving and self-preserving justices of all political stripes who stayed too long on the court merely, and these are true, to spite a president or will away a stroke or stave off retirement of pinochle and shuffleboard, not exactly good behavior. The founders never declared explicitly that good behavior necessarily meant for life. So why, on this occasion only, would an originalist throw his lot in with, uh, living constitutionalists, eager to bend the Constitution to their will? I had him dead to rights. Surely he, a man who swore by the letter of the law, would swear by the letter of this law, that is, save one letter, to which he, into which, to which he owed his entire career. I was proud of my judicial jujitsu. Who determines good behavior, he asks. Good behavior, I correct him. He was pronouncing the U. <laughs> That's what I said. Who gets to decide? I've anticipated this question. Scalia listens closely as I propose a judging body of composed of three people appointed by the president whose sole responsibility is to determine whether the justices are passing the good behavior test as revived by my new constitution. He gets what I'm aiming at. A supreme supreme court, he says, with a laugh. Scalia is evidently amused by the idea. I can tell he's not ruling it out. Just one question, he says. I raise my chin and allow it. Yes, your honor? How long do they serve, he asks. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> uh, anyway, there's more I could read from, but now that it, oh, oh thank you, thank you. <laughs> I'll pass that along to the justice. Um, uh, now that I've justified my book to you and to Justice Scalia and to the ghosts of Madison and Hamilton, I'm happy to take a few what I, of what I hope will be your softball questions. I believe uh, it's time, right? Yes. Hi. Um, how important are states' rights in your uh, new constitution? Quite important. I, I, it's funny because I, the, there's a number of articles that address them, I mean, and a number of amendments as well. I mean, you have the fourth article, which kind of tries to referee which states, wh whether or not states have to s essentially um, respect the, determ the, the laws and the determinations of other states. Um, and then, of course, you have amendments as well, like the Ninth Amendment and the Tenth Amendment. <coughs> They're crucially important. Um, and I actually make, I think, a comic argument in the fourth article especially about it's states' rights, the states have every reason to want to live free or die, as I guess it's New Hampshire that might say, meaning do what they want to do. And I actually make a very good argument about I believe entirely in states' rights, um, as did the founders, even though the Constitution was some step back. The Constitution itself, not the Bill of Rights, but the Constitution that stepped back was a, itself was a step back from states' rights in a sense because they were trying to bolster the federal government at a time when states weren't getting along and they needed a more centralized government at the time. Um, I posit the arguments that unfortunately we've had a lot of interstate squabbling about whether or not one state should recognize the gay marriage rights of another state or the commerce clause of another state. And while I bring you along in the arguments about pro and against, um, which I'm sure I've forgotten, all the good ones, uh, I do make the comic argument, well, there's only one real 
well, obvious way that we can actually determine how states can get along, and that is to rank the states from here on out and determine who has to respond to who. And I make very ridiculous you know, reasons why certain New York is number one and Nebraska is number 49. Of course, amusingly, I, and Rhode Island, by the way, number 50, for every good reason, I'll tell you. <laughs> For, not just because it's tiny. Uh, I'm tiny, so I have no problem with that. Uh, you're not from Rhode Island? Oh, well, there you go. You, you should probably leave, because I'm about to. Yeah. No, God bless Rhode Island, and God bless New Nebraska. Obviously, wonderful states. <laughs> wonderful states. Um, but Rhode Island, especially, Rhode Island isn't just tiny and doesn't deserve, right, two senators when you have New York. Come on. The, the founders never presumed such an incredible, you know, the, the population did not expect such a disparity. They didn't expect that. But um, that's the real argument, I suppose, that a lot of people say that we should either get rid of the Senate, as Rex Guy Tugwell did, or change the number of senators in certain states. But, what, but I lean into Rhode Island because they were the heel draggers for ev on every step of the way during the foundation of the country. They never actually showed up at the Constitutional Convention. They refused to ratify it until it was obviously that they were going to be left out. The, the, the tiniest state was the biggest pain in the ass for the first 30 years of the Constitution of the country. Uh, so obviously I had to list them 50th. Uh, I, spend, I spend a little time explaining why I list Nebraska 49th. And amusingly, Salon did an excerpt of my book, and they excerpted that part of it. Didn't quite point, didn't get to the point where I point out that it's somewhat arbitrary that I picked Nebraska as a, so I got some hate mail for Nebraskans, but only from the ones that don't have a sense of humor and don't understand that I was trying to make a larger point about, you know, how, how can we all get along in a real way? And if the only way is to rank them, well then let's try to do that. Uh, hopefully that answers that question. Of course, in the back, I guess. I was just wondering, how do you handle uh, gun rights? In the Second Amendment. Of course. I'm happy to address that. I mean, it's a tough one because it's a very serious issue. Um, <clears throat> and I will also put a little bit of a, of a preface on this and say I actually started to research that amendment and write about it a little bit just as a very close friend of mine was shot. Um, uh, my, uh, Gabby Giffords is a, is a friend of mine as you know, and her husband, Mark Kelly. Um, what we know about gun rights, um, or, excuse me, the Second Amendment, is that the dividing line, recently anyway, has been whether or not militias should have the right to bear arms. I, I believe in gun rights. Um, but the question has been whether or not militias have the right to bear arms, or in fact individuals also have the right to bear arms. Supreme Court said recently that individuals too have the right to bear arms. I agree with that. Um, but the, the question mark there has been actually, to some degree, the writing of the Second Amendment too. It's a little bit obtuse. Um, and some of it comes down to punctuation. Um, it's not a very well-written sentence. I don't have it memorized. I probably should have it memorized, but it's not a very well-written sentence. And punctuation has added a little bit of confusion to it. Um, so I make the argument that, you know, having, having described the arguments on both sides, I make the argument that if punctuation is really the issue here, and if there's anything I can do to keep, at the very least, guns out of people who are either mentally unstable or will do bad things with them uh, that they shouldn't do, then I will add as much punctuation to the amendment as possible. So you will see that there is a semicolon, a comma, about 14,000 uh, exclamation points, even in that one sentence. Just to say, if this, if, this might, if this might allow a Supreme Court in the future to find some way to get guns out of crazy people's hands, well, then that's how I feel about it. But I fundamentally believe in gun rights. I've shot guns. I understand the appeal. Um, so I have no problem with it. Uh, you know, it's, they go boom. It's kind of an amazing thing. Uh, and for that matter, Gabby Giffords, my friend, 
owned a gun herself. Um, so I, you know, fundamentally I agree with gun rights, but I kind of suggest if there's any way we can find in the future to be a little bit more conscientious and rational about our, our gun control laws, then fine, I'll happily step in, step into that fray. It's hard to be funny about guns. It's hard to be funny about a lot of this, but hopefully I've, I've done my best. And I will also say more generally, I hope that people presume, if I can add a little bit of a general thought, I hope people presume that while I'm making comic hay of the Constitution, I don't want to tell you, spoil the ending, but the butler didn't do it here. That is to say, I spend a, a full preface, seven articles and 27 amendments rewriting the Constitution to come to the conclusion that, oh yeah, what we have is a pretty phenomenal piece of uh, parchment and uh, there's every reason to revere it, but this might bring other people who haven't read the Constitution a little bit more attention to the Constitution itself. Please, uh, uh, who's got the mic? Yes, thank you. Um, how about the individual's right to special gardening? Special gardening. Yes, and in the enjoyment oh, right. of that gardening. You know, it's funny. I don't actually address that. And I mean, I, a little bit in the... Actually, that's not totally true. In, in the fourth article, a little bit about certain rights, like, for example, Oregon has pretty liberal gardening laws, as I understand it. Um, and I suggest whether or, not, whether or not other states should have to respect Oregon's liberal gardening, law, gardening laws. And I kind of... I do make a case, I think, for... If it's good for you and your state agrees on it, then then there should be no real under, you know, the federal government at that point seems pretty logical that that's when states' rights should step in and say, well, wait a minute, this isn't something, you know, people aren't shooting each other with marijuana. I don't mean shooting each other. <laughs> I mean, so meaning there are good reasons to believe that we can live and let live uh, on, on certain issues like that. So uh, I come out, I think, in favor of states' rights, especially those states that feel like our population needs, you know, medical marijuana or what have you, yeah. Not to, not to harp on a point about the Second oh, Amendment. Oh, please. Please but, go um, ahead. <laughs> I don't um, mind. I, I think it says it's like, uh, it's that the right of people to uh, carry weapons or bear arms against an infringing government. Agreed, um, right, Something like right. that. So do you write anything about how the Constitution is always subject to, to interpretation and how, you know, whoever interprets it, that, you know, that's who plays the game, basically? Well, I can answer specifically on the Second Amendment, if that's what you're referring to. Uh, I actually spent a good deal in that article describing that there are actually, both Scalia, in, in his decision, I believe, on that particular case a few years back, or maybe it was his concurring opinion, I forget if he had given the actual decision, he rewrites the Second Amendment. He actually restructures it and flips the clauses around and, say, and says, this is open to interpretation, and my interpretation of what the Second Amendment is, is this. And does it. Rewrites this, I'm like, well, it's inspiring to me because here's a Supreme Court justice rewriting the Constitution. Certainly I should give it a shot. And then beyond that, I point out that there's a, uh, the, the official Constitution, I shouldn't say official, but one of the adopted constitutions among the Tea Party is something called the Constitution Made Easy that was written by a guy named Michael Haller, um, who is an NRA certified gun instructor but also, I guess as a sideline, rewrites constitutions, <laughs> like I do. Um, and they've adopted it, and he also has a very similar rewrite to the Second Amendment that Scalia has, that does suggest that essentially, not just in order to have a militia we have gun rights, but rather individuals have a right uh, as, as their, as their you know, uh, obligation to be individual citizens and who might become part of a militia, so therefore you have an individual right. So yeah, it's all, it's all up to interpretation. I mean, that's the whole point. The whole point is, it is all up to interpretation, Right now, the Supreme Court gets to interpret it, um, which is in itself kind of ridiculous, or I say surprising. I do ridicule it a bit, but I just mean it's surprising because, and again, in my me search, 
I learned that there was no intention for, of the three branches of government for the Supreme Court to be so powerful um, back it, when they wrote the Constitution. James Madison actually, during the ratification debates, went around and said, we might even not have that many courts, to be honest with you. He actually tried to undersell it. And then, of course, through Marbury versus Madison and judicial review uh, over the last 200 years has become, in some people's minds, the most powerful uh, branch of government, and they, of course, get to interpret what the Constitution says. So it is all up for interpretation, and in particular, in this particular case, nine people get to interpret it. Um, I don't have the mic, so I can't. I know they want to record this. We have time for two more questions. I'll take one right in the front row. You've obviously put a lot of research or research. Thank you very into, much for noticing. Uh, into the book. And let um, me just let me interrupt you really quickly and say I, I have worked on it. to become a, a, a pretend expert in the Constitution. I had actually to read a lot about the Constitution, um, but I hope when people read it, they'll enjoy the kind of roller coaster element of I'm only just a paragraph ahead of the reader on what I just learned. So I mean, I have a huge kind of comic blind spots that I bring you along in, but I feel like I've tried to at least get it right by the end of the chapter. So thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. Uh, what, so outside, Is that what he pointed out? I'll just take that as a compliment. Yeah, out, well, yeah no, but <laughs> outside of the realm of comedy, what, what uh -oh. would you say your hopes are for this book? Do you have any... I don't know life outside the realm uh, of comedy. Right. <laughs> uh, no. Look, I can say that. I'll answer that sincerely. Um, yeah. I do believe that at a time when... Um, only one out of four Americans ever having remember ever remember having read the Constitution, and quite frankly, they probably did it as a an assignment in class, and they certainly haven't read it recently. Um, and then there are other kind of even alarming statistics, like I don't know if this is a recent poll, but more people can American more Americans can name the three stooges than the three branches of government. Uh, a lot of people believe that. Uh, according to his mean, you know, each according to their means, uh, each to each their needs, you know, the Karl Marx quote is actually in the Constitution. Um, John Boehner himself famously held up a pocket Constitution in 2009 and said, I stand with the founders who wrote in the preamble, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, which of course is unfortunately in the Declaration of Independence. Also a great document, and truly, I would have made just as broad a mistake as I've said a couple of times. I, if you had grilled me after a cocktail, I probably would have said that the, the Constitution begins with, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Um, <laughs> So I don't know what I'm, I didn't know what I'm, of course I try to remember what I'm talking about and I read the Constitution in order to respect this, but um, to answer it sincerely, yeah, I hope it brings a little bit of attention to the Constitution for maybe a, a crowd of people that might need a little bit of subversion, uh, that is to say a little comic take in order to uh, enjoy the Constitution, go back to the source code, enjoy that. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, if, if I don't think the founders would be upset with me if they knew that my ultimate goal was to uh, bring attention to the Constitution and, yes, even continue the debate over what the Constitution is because, as I said before, they were debating it even after, right after they wrote the thing. Um, heck, one little anecdote I learned is that they actually started to write the thing before they had decided on what was going to be in it. They were so sick of each other after four months that they assigned a smaller committee to, at night to say, just give it your best shot, and then we'll look at it in the morning, and if we like it, we'll vote on it. I mean, they were really making it up as they went along. So I don't think that they would be surprised that 200 years later, well, I think they might be surprised that it was standing tall the way it does right now with only 27 amendments, but I don't think they'd be surprised that you know, people are debating what it means still, and I think they would, I would hope that they would embrace the idea of somebody saying, hey, look at this thing, which is, I think, ultimately the idea of what I've done. Um, yeah. Last question right thank here. Thank you. <clears throat> a lot of pressure. Well, thank you, thank you so much. A lot of pressure. Well, it was a great... On me. <laughs> uh, it was a great book, and uh, one thing that really oh, came you. out 
uh, it was that it, uh, it's a disagreement in writing, really, the, yeah. uh, the Constitution. And you portray how it really comes together and the lubricants of the beer in the morning and things like yeah. that. And what's yeah. missing is a sex scandal. And we, pa don't, we don't have a sex scandal. I don't there. have a sex scandal. Uh, no, I do. There's a sex scandal in there. By the way, is that what you asked? A sex scandal? Yeah. The yeah. Sex scandal. There's, first of all, there's enough, it's, enough ste it's steamy enough in that summer that I don't know how much more sex scandal you want. Um, but it, the book's a little steamy in parts. Uh, uh, John Stewart called it Fifty Shades of Red, White, and Blue, um, <laughs> which I appreciate. Uh, but the only sex scandal is that, again, the, the peg-legged Governor Morris, as I mentioned, the man who is noted to be the author of the, um, of the preamble, um, lost his peg leg, according to, lost his leg according to one story by getting run over by a carriage horse. But the more uh, believable story by most people is that he was jumping out of a bedroom window to escape the jealous husband of one of the ladies that he was having sex with. So there's a little bit of a sex scandal, but not within the walls of Independence Hall. How dare you? <laughs> Come on now, these are our framers. Come on now. Um, I guess that's it. I really appreciate it. So all I can say to everybody here is that, thank you, is that there's about 30, there's, there's, there's a handful of people here. I'm expecting you all to go get this ratified. I appreciate that. We need, we need all the votes we can get. Thanks a lot, I appreciate that. All right.